Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. Over the past week, the world has reacted with horror over Russia's reckless and indiscriminate war in Ukraine. In many respects, this is the world's first smartphone war, as the coverage often is, is streamed in real time by average people. Ukraine's President Zelensky, a former comedian actor, has proved to be the Winston Churchill of the 21st century. It just goes to show you that great leaders can, can surface from the most unlikely places. I'm dedicating today's entire podcast for a discussion about the role that technology has played in the Ukrainian crisis and what effect it could have on influencing Putin's behavior, hopefully for the good. Joining me for today's podcast is the dynamic duo of uh, podcast uh, folks. That's Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, U.S. News, Technologists, Investopedia, and other publications. John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. And Rob Pecorero, unfortunately, is on a plane back. He's actually on a plane at this moment, uh, coming back from Mobile World Congress, so he won't be on the call. But, gentlemen, good afternoon, and how are you? Good afternoon. Lovely. It's yeah. been a yeah. It's been a, it's been one heck of Better a week. Than the um, Keith. Yes, you know, and it, you know what's so unfortunate? It's almost like th- th- since the news has been nonstop. I mean, it's really been almost a twenty-four-seven thing for the last seven or eight days. Right. You know, you uh, you almost are expecting, when you expect something to get maybe a little bit better, you hear more rhetoric out of Russia and that, well, you know, we're, we're prepared to do this, we're prepared to do that. It's very dispiriting. And, you know, the, the, both of you I know are students of history. I'm a student of history. Um, you know, you, I think you were, how, got, how old were you guys during the Cuban Missile Crisis? I mean, I was all of one, if I remember. I was seven. Okay. <laughs> so you were, I, I doubt you were watching the news back then, Stuart. But, right. But, you know, I always used to ask people, what was it like? What was the feeling like with people during that during that 10-day period of the Cuban Missile Crisis? You get, I get various accounts from different people. You know, there were some people that were very concerned, especially after Kennedy made that speech on Sunday night, kind of, you know, opening the kimono on what they knew about the, 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 um, the, the missiles that were already under construction in Cuba. Then you get other people saying, you know what? It was just one of those things. Yeah, there was maybe a little bit of runs on supermarkets, but yeah, you know, life went on. I think we're now getting a flavor and taste for what, you know, a, a true crisis is. And it's starting to put things in perspective of what the most important things are, you know, in, in, in life, regardless of how you may feel politically about things. But, you know, th- this is going to be a, a war. It is a war, unlike any other war in that, you know, there's tens of millions of people that have smartphones over there for those folks who haven't left. And they're broadcasting some of this coverage live in high definition, by the way. It's not grainy uh, newsreel uh, footage from the uh, from the Second World War. So, Stuart, any opening comments before we get into the topics I want to cover? Uh, any any thoughts that's been kind yeah, of well, technology, technology has always played a huge role in war. The old saw is that old, new wars start out with old technology, which means old tactics. And the side that adapts most quickly to new technologies and develops new tactics usually win the war. In the Civil War, one of the big technological turning points 
not only the telegraph and the railroad, but the repeating rifle, which made a huge impact on the battlefield. In World War One, it was tank technology and the new technology of airplanes and radio. Um, and in the Second World War, obviously, the atomic bomb and radar played huge roles uh, in winning the war, as well as code breaking. These are all new technologies that allowed the winning side and gave the winning side an advantage. And I think we're seeing the same thing to a certain extent play out here, that that uh, that Putin has been essentially planning a war that was based in 1990s technology. Did, <laughs> um, it did not count on the power of, as you say, that everybody in Ukraine, which is a very social media conscious country from what I'm given to understand, everybody has a TV studio in their pocket. Um, and as a result, one of the, one of the more fascinating things I, I, I heard was that the Ukrainians are allowing Russian POWs to call their parents, which I thought was hysterical. It's always in wars. In wars, usually the first thing in wars or revolutions, the first target is usually the telephone exchange, the radio station, and I'm going back obviously a ways, as well as TV stations. I mean, Putin just tried to knock out the TV tower in, in Kiev. But these obviously with social media and with everybody with a cell phone in their pocket, as we mentioned, with Internet connection, I'm astounded to see all these interviews coming live from basements in Ukraine. Zelensky just held a press conference in, 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 in Ukraine. They don't need the TV in Ukraine. They don't need the TV in Russia. In Russia. So Putin is fighting technology with uh, fighting a war with old technology and is not going to be able to adapt as quickly as Ukrainians to the new technology. Uh, so I think that's a great point, uh, although I would probably quibble a little bit with the date. I'd probably go back to the uh, 80s in terms of the way the Russians seem to be fighting the war versus the 90s. But we can exactly. I mean, they're, they're fighting the Mujin in in in, uh, in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So, I mean, this is all wars. All wars are like that. They start off with old technology and the side that adapts the quickest. Same thing happened in Vietnam. Um, the North Vietnamese had adapted a type of war that the U.S. had never yeah. fought before or actually had fought. They'd just forgotten that they fought it in the Revolutionary War. Yeah. So, right. I mean, this happens in almost all conflicts where the losing side just sticks with old technologies and old tactics um, or a combination of the two and are ultimately overcome sometimes by forces um, um, with greater military power. And I, John, I think, you know, sir, has made a number of great points. I mean, and we haven't even talked about medical technology. Medical technology, there's typically significant, significant advances that happen after every war. There were, believe it or not, if you flash back to the Civil War when you were around, John, I mean, there were, <laughs> the, the, the notion of amputating limbs and, and having battlefield, they were primitive, um, camps that could take uh, people who were injured on the battlefield and, and cut off their arms and legs to save their life. Of course, sometimes they went overboard and they, they, they amputated limbs that didn't need to be ampu um, uh, amputated, but it extended people's lives. I mean, you look at the Korean War, the helicopter played a significant role in getting folks off the battlefield to the, the MASH camps. You know, everybody's familiar with the TV show. Those were real things. They were mobile hospitals. And and they could, and I, and I want to hear, there was a stat during the, the, the um, during the Iraqi war that if they, if, if they could get you off the battlefield alive 
in under two minutes, uh, under 10 minutes, they had a, the military statistics for everything. Your survivability rate was like at 98%. Now, you, of course, you might be in pretty bad shape, obviously, for a whole bunch of reasons, but the ability to save your life went up exponentially. So, John, yeah. before we get into any topic, anything you want to add to what Stuart? Uh, Oh, you know, some of it is too that they they can't knock out all the infrastructure because the 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 idea is to occupy this country and, and not not even to occupy it. I mean, the idea is to put in a different government and leave. Now, I think they understand that's not going to happen. So it's not a winnable war. That's just never mm-hmm. going to be a winnable war. They're not going to be able to occupy the country. So now what? Um, and they can't really knock out the infrastructure because they need to use that infrastructure themselves. So they're right. kind of in this odd situation where that's one of the reasons. No, why it, 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 it's, it's very, very Sherman-esque. And I don't yeah. mean that in a good way. And that, yeah. well, so one one a, other technology yeah. point that I think is very, very important here. We were talking about smartphone technology, but the technological advantage, advantage that Ukrainians may have in this is the internet itself. The internet itself was developed by the U.S. as a decentralized system technology in case the centralized network got knocked out by nuclear war or any other kind of thing. So the internet in Ukraine is working exactly the way the internet was designed to work, to decentralize communications. And I think that's the key point that I think the, the Putin just didn't know about. He didn't know about DARPA and the, and the reasons why the internet was created to begin with. Right. Well, it's the proximity to remember, you could knock out the nodes in the Ukraine and take them offline. That's not a not problem. With Starlink. You, That's like well, why Musk is playing a key role here. If that is still available, if if you know that that if <laughs> um, my experience with Starlink is not very positive. So um, you know, but it's the proximity. You're right next to Poland. You're right next to all these other countries that have those nodes on the internet. So all you need to right. do is connect to them. That's the that's the issue. But yeah, I mean, some technologies might come out of it. You know, the tele the uh, telescope, the the binoculars, and um, the submarine from, you know, I remember writing about those for uh, the Civil War era. Uh, um, but uh, I don't know that much is going to come. I don't I can't see any good coming out of this, really. Um, you know, we'll see about Starlink. One of the problems with Starlink is it's terrible for video conferencing. That's its major Achilles heel. And that's the critical thing that we all use now. So uh, Zelensky doing the the face uh, Facebook things has been really interesting. Uh, posting those videos. And I think that has made a huge difference because everybody thought it was going to be a fait accompli. It would just happen. They'd roll the tanks in. It would be over in a day. And here this guy says, no, I don't want to lift. I want ammunition. And yes. everything changed. Everything well, changed. You know, I really want to do jump into some of the great yeah. examples. Of, and we're talking about it already, actually, in terms of right. the to me, what this affair, affair, that's a too polite phrase, what this crisis has revealed right. is that the internet and smart technology, um, social media technology has great potential and is performing, I think, in many respects to, that really satisfies the inspiration of mankind in terms of uh, creating the ability for the oppressed to be heard. And certainly you could say the Ukrainians are being oppressed in the most terrible way right now um, in Ukraine. And I also think, and I want, I want Stuart to, uh, to comment on this, 
if the rumors are true, and I suspect they are, about Putin himself, who is not a social, he's not a social media maniac. Apparently, he doesn't carry a smartphone. He's an ex-KGB guy, doesn't want to be tracked. I'm sure that's part of it. But if you, if what is being said about him over the last week or so, certainly over the last several months, and that he's an isolated guy, isn't that some of the, the some of the problems? Is he doesn't really he doesn't really have visibility to what the world is saying about him. You know, and that that's the thing that kind of scares me. So because I, unless he's mad and most people think that there is kind of a screw loose with uh, with uh, with Putin right now, because I just don't understand the logic of what he's trying to accomplish. And I think I speak for many, many people about that. But do you think that his, his ability to be isolated from social media could be a problem? You know, that, hey, it could be a problem. I, I think it could be a problem for him from what I understand that the older generation in Russia gets their news from TV, which is really no different than the way it is in most of the world. But the young people in Russia do not rely on TV. They rely on the internet and on social media. And so they're getting the real news. And I think what is might very well happen to Putin is, is that there could be an uprising either from within the palace, you know, uh, or from outside that he simply will have no clue about because he's not tuned in and whether or not any of his yes men inner circle. I mean, I, I'm assuming that you guys saw that that press conference a week ago with his security, his so-called security um, uh, infrastructure, where those guys just looked like scared rabbits if they even hinted at disagreeing with them. And in the past, that may have been something that past dictators relied upon, but he's completely out of touch with the dissatisfaction of the general public. And that could prove to be more of his undoing um, him not understanding the feelings of the people. He thinks, you know, through his phony polls that give him 85% approval rating because people are scared to say anything else, that, that he, there may, we may be seeing the, uh, the 1905 revolution play itself out all over again. Yes. No. John, what are your thoughts on his isolation and uh, the role? Well, and, and let me just say one other thing uh, to, to kind of, both uh, to uh, the comments that uh, Stuart just mentioned, you know, he has obviously a circle of like most despots of, you know, trusted, trusted sources, although they're all, they're all yes men because you don't get that job unless you are a, a yes person. But I have to believe those people, the people that have to carry out his orders do have access to social media and they do know what's going on. So the question is, do they want to go down with the ship? I mean, at a certain point, do they want to carry out orders? I mean, God forbid he give an order to use a tactical nuclear weapon or, you know, and that's the, 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 the posturing and the bullying that kind of concerns me in that, hey, I want to go out and take out, take out a supply caravan that's coming in from Poland on the NATO and the, on the, on the uh, Polish border, which presumably would be an attack on a NATO country. I mean, could he, could, is it possible that his staff might say, you know what, um, Vladimir, it's over. You know, we're, we're not going to carry out your orders. Is that a possible scenario, John? Uh, yeah, I, it's it's I, I, so I keep seeing these pictures of people in Moscow and the reporters in Moscow. And I stayed in the Ritz Carlton across the street from Red Square. And I was there when uh, Novotny came out and they said, oh, there's this guy who's going to talk a little bit across the street. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I know full well that I'm being watched the entire time. Yeah. Everything I do, you know, we basically threw out our laptops and phones and stuff like that when we got back. We just didn't use VPNs. 
but there were only like 20 people outside for Navalny there in the square, which was him in the early days. And then there was a big armored personnel carrier that rolled up. So it was, it's a pretty intimidating environment to be in. Um, and to see this many people in Russia protesting tells you something about the problems that Putin's going to have now. But because um, Putin was in power when I was there, nobody liked him really much then. Um, <laughs> yes, but uh, <laughs> but it, it, I think it, it, it may determine, you know, what people are willing to do to to uh, to take him out um, right. and maybe part of the oligarchs will be involved in some of that. Now, you know, we've seen them, the barricades and stuff and the tanks before with Yeltsin and all that stuff. So it could happen. Uh, but he's, Putin is a, you know, he kills people in other countries who just upset him a little bit. He has them murdered. So who knows, you know? No, I, I agree with that, John. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny how history, you know, we've talked before about a lot of different topics and, uh, you know, history repeats itself. I know people, t you know, kind of you know, think about that as kind of a cliche, yeah. but I think Stuart's yeah. right. This, this could be a repeat of the um, of the uh, the revolution back in uh, and, and uh, back in the early early 20th century. And you know what's so strange about this before we get on to the next topic here? I really, again, I always think about what is it, what are the motivations? You know, we can talk all day long about, you know, had we armed Ukraine before this in the last year, would that have been enough to uh, prevent uh, um, uh, uh, Putin from invading? Who knows? That's one for the history books and the historians to, to, uh, to decide. But the question is, what was his intention? And, 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 he, and had he, he had to know that there would be tremendous resistance and, and and it's almost like at every strategic objective he had with this it failed it united nato nato two weeks ago was kind of regarded as kind of a oh this is a vestige of the late 20th century we really don't need this anymore many of the countries don't pay their two percent obligation anyway even though trump was right about that that he should have they should have stepped up they they struck they struck their um their deal with the devil in terms of getting the majority of their energy resources from Russia, that didn't that hasn't turned out to be really uh, a great decision. But it, it's, it's united NATO in, in a way that I, didn't, I, I could not have believed it if you had told me about this a week ago. You know, so just kind of fascinating stuff here. Let's hit the next topic here. Uh, you know, a bunch of companies have gotten on the bandwagon. You know, uh, all the major, I, in fact, I don't think you can find a major American company that's not has not announced that it's decided not to do business in, in Russia. I think that's all great stuff. You know, I think, uh, obviously, I don't think any, any reasonable person could object to that. But the little cynical part of me says, you know, many of these companies waited to days four, five, and six to make that decision. So... Stuart, am I right to be cynical about this, or are they? Are they? Maybe they just didn't. You know, they haven't been watching the news, and once they saw the news, they decided, hey, maybe we don't want to play ball with Russians. What? Are you, what, what am I right to be cynical or not, Stuart? Um, I would say yes and no. I I I think that main corporations and countries operate so differently on and in such different planes and the interconnectivity not the physical but the 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 um, the way that the business is conducted is so radically different from the way the government is connected it always makes me laugh whenever i hear about a businessman running for government office running a company and running a government are so totally 
opposite each other. One is a for-profit thing and one is for a not-profit. And yet we somehow think that somebody who runs a big corporation is capable of running the government. They have just so different philosophies. So for mm. companies, when companies consider whether or not they're selling to a company, I mean, you have to remember that Nazi Germany had a lot of American companies that, again, were very slow to the party. It wasn't until Franklin Roosevelt put his foot down that a lot of, you know, General Electric and, and Ford and a lot of these other companies, they don't want to lose business in these countries, the the um, especially large economies. Now, we are these American companies are somewhat fortunate that the Russian market is very small in terms of the consumer technology marketplace, not a huge business market. But the problem is that Russia also has con connections to India, which are still very strong, which is obviously a market that everybody wants to get into. It's one of the reasons that India has been very, very slow to condemn Russia because yeah. they've been getting a lot of their military hardware from Russia and they just haven't forged the, the ties to the West and especially the U.S. that they can switch those alliances. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of international business considerations that are completely different from governmental. And nobody ever accused American corporations of being moral or ethical. So their decisions are based purely on dollars, not on, you know, or mostly on dollars anyway, um, and on profits. And whether or not they're late to the party, I mean, quite frankly, Warner Brothers saying we're not going to send Batman there, I found laughable because with the way that the ruble has been falling in value, nobody's got any money to go to the movies anyway. <laughs> So it's not like they're going to lose a lot of money. by. So this was sort of, uh, once the, started to fall, the Warner Brothers decision was dead easy because they weren't going to make any money there anyway, so they could make themselves look good. So I think there's a certain amount of healthy cynicism, but we it's difficult to look at corporate decision-making as analogous to, um, to international and government, um, the way governments operate. So you almost can't blame them. They have stockholders to answer to. And it's just, it's a whole different set of rules than for, you know, Ireland to say, uh, uh, we think Russia should be, you know, should be uh, um, sanctioned. Right. John, your thoughts, late to the party or, hey, Mark, you're being too hard on American companies. <laughs> Well, again, I come back to it. I think the assumption was that this would all be over in a day and a half. You know, that that was pretty much the assumption that everybody had. They may have forgotten that that's what their assumption was, but it pretty much was. So they didn't really, you know, it wasn't like, oh, Google should have done something in advance. You don't shut down operations until you see what's going to happen and is there a new regime or if they capitulated or what happens. So I don't think they were really actually that late to it. What's I've found curious because it's a company I cover and people I know that work there and stuff uh, and have visited them is our companies like Kaspersky, right? And then yeah. uh, what, what do you do if you're Kaspersky, you have um, a tremendous amount of expertise, uh, one of the leaders in the cybersecurity field, no question about it. Um, but uh, you're sort of stuck in this position. And I know I asked him years ago, you know, why are you sticking around? It wasn't very good then. You know, these people have money, they could leave the country. But, um, you know, it's it's family and, and other issues that come up. Uh, so I think it's put companies like that in a very, very strange position. There are several also uh, companies involved in autonomous vehicles and AVs. 
which are also they're more below the radar, no pun intended, but they're uh, you know, this is going to put them in an impossible situation because they use off the shelf parts. They right. use LIDAR and, and radar and NXP uh, systems in their vehicles. Well, they're not going to be able to do that anymore. So uh, it, it's it's kind of it's a really awkward position from the other side of the technology spectrum, too. Right. Well, well another, another point is, you know, on the uncynical side, I guess you could say, um, is that the social media companies, Facebook, for all the rally we do against Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, they all uh, very quickly shut down all the Russian propaganda outlets on those networks. I'm, I'm not sure that I was surprised at that. Maybe I was more surprised at how quickly they did it, considering the pushback they gave during the whole election business. So the, they reacted relatively quickly to the situation there, probably far more quickly than companies who did straight business there, you know, hardware right. business right. there. Right. Well, I think they also learned their lesson from COVID and from uh, January the 6th. I mean, you can't yep. have people storming the government and trying to take it over, you know, and support stuff like that. So they learned from that this time. And so when this happened, you know, immediately they had a reaction too. But um, yeah, I think it was a lot quicker. And now they're being they're being asked to give me your information on all the disinformation on COVID-19, right? Right. That's going to be a yeah, very yeah. interesting thing to say, okay, here are the people that are doing it. Here are the sources of people that are doing it. Uh, so uh, that'll be another move. So yeah, I, I do think that all, that has changed their attitude. You're right, Stuart. They've just learned from those mistakes. Let, let's take, let's talk very yeah. quickly with the next topic about the really the pivotal role of social media because this has really been in many ways a you know a smart, what I call smartphone war, a social media war, and it's and I do think it's the it really showing the best aspect, best aspects, the best potential in a positive way of what social media could do because let's face it, Zelensky has become this. You know, and I, I really do think, you know, based on the, 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 the videos I've seen of him and the way he's handling himself, you know, he's conducting himself really unlike any other leader I can think of in the last 30 or 40 years that have been under these kind of circumstances. I mean, you, you would think that anybody else in this situation, they would have taken the ride that Biden offered him and get the hell out of the country. Right. But to, yeah. to his credit, you know, he's stuck around and his family has stuck around and, um, the uh, and I think he's he's I don't know whether he's I wouldn't call him a social media expert by any means, but he's certainly been able to take advantage of the of the coverage. And I think this would be very a very different situation if social media wasn't performing the role that it did in terms of, you know, uh, really preventing Putin from hiding the horror. That's what's happening over here, because, you know, communist governments, when they do things like this, they don't want the world to know. You know that yes, they're 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 with they're without equal when it comes to misinformation. But at the same time, they don't want you to know what the heck is going on because they, they, I think people are reacting with horror. I mean that news report I saw this morning, if it's accurate, you know, and I think and I think it's coming from U.S. government sources that there might be um, public executions. You know, I mean that's right out of the the, the Gestapo. Uh, uh, playbook from the uh, from the 1930s and 1940s, and and by the way, I think the, there's a Soviet playbook that's probably chapter two, 
after that. But uh, go ahead, uh, uh, Stuart. Let me know what you think about that question about the, the role that social media has played. Well, the, what's really energized NATO and the other um, and, and the West generally to get them all together was the delay in in what um, in what Putin had intended. In other words, Putin thought it was going to be quick and he even put out um, on propaganda that they had taken Kiev and that Zelensky had been dead. And what delayed things not only wasn't the Ukrainian military response and mm. unity, but the fact that Zelensky was able to counter the Soviet, I'm sorry, Soviet, the Russian propaganda by social media, that he was able to show his people he's out on the street, he hadn't left the city, that he was still in control and command. The fact that he had social media as a weapon to unify the people that spurred um, the spurred the military response, the fact that they put out the recipe for Molotov cocktails on social media. So I think social media played a key role that kept the Russians from doing what they thought they were going to do, which was simply sweep across, take it, and they were done. The, the That three or four day delay was key. And I think that delay was, was, was uh, the foundation of that was social media, was yes. Zelensky being able to communicate with the people of Ukraine and keep them together in a way in a country that did not have social media would not have been able to done. The propaganda that Putin would have put, put out would have been believed. People would have thrown down their arms or whatever, or streamed out in even greater numbers than the million that have already left. I think social media came played a key role, if not the key role, in that three or four day delay that kept Putin from achieving his objectives. Mm -hmm. John? Yeah, I think that that made it was a critical difference. Uh, Zelensky was, you know, a, a major difference here in getting online and getting those messages out. And then having them played on CNN over and over and over again um, so that, yeah, the message was pretty clear. And now there's a problem because, um, they don't want to murder him, I assume. That would just be even worse. Um, you capture I don't know him. about that, John. John, I don't know about that. I think that. they do. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what, what they do here. But, um, you know, in terms of, uh, yeah, it, it's, you see videos of the cluster bombs coming down today. I don't know if you saw that. That was from somebody's yes. uh, phone. Um, you saw the thermobaric um, explosions, which are considered to be war crimes now, if you use them in in any area. Not, like not a, by the way, not a fun way to die when when right. when, they, when they, uh, those type of weapons are used. Right. I'm sorry, there, a, I'm sorry. Is there a fun way to die? Yeah. Well. Um, and uh, I could come and, up with a few ways that would be better than using. <laughs> right. And, and it's true. There, you know, there. The example of, of the mother with her uh, a nine year old daughter. They're in a basement and they're streaming stuff yes. constantly from Kiev. Uh, so you're seeing that and you're seeing, I don't know if you guys know anybody like this, but I know a few people who are survivors, right, of the Holocaust. And those people are, <laughs> those yeah. people are tough. And there's a, there's a whole video that a group of them have put, they're in the Ukraine right now, they're stuck there, you know, and uh, they're Holocaust survivors and their message is pretty clear. So you've got, you know, it is, it is interesting that this is having an impact. I mean, this is not a, this is a country you know, that has sophisticated technology like the rest of us. This right. isn't like a country where you can bomb them into oblivion right away. That's not going to happen. No. And, yeah. and we're going to talk about the, I want to get your thoughts in a couple of minutes about the end game here. We'll get to that in, in, in a second. If there, Hopefully there is a, 
some type of reasonable end game. You know, Stuart, one topic you and I kind of emailed about uh, a couple of days ago is oh, that yeah. to me, this is this is it's amusing and interesting at the same time, and that VPN demand in Russia has surged two thousand percent in a week. I just think that that I was not aware of that. It doesn't surprise me that demand is up, but I didn't realize it would be up uh, two uh, two thousand percent. That has to really claw at Boris Putin, especially in the total uh, total total a total a, a dictatorship. I wouldn't even use the T word. Uh, where you, you want to be able to to uh, know everything that people are chatting about online or, or or getting access to. So, Stuart, did this surprise you? Yes and no. I knew that Russians were using a lot of the um, a lot of VPNs. You have to remember something. VPNs in in, the, in Russia are illegal. So the yeah. fact that it has surged this much. Despite the fact that it's illegal, I mean, it, it and, and how exactly is the Russian government going to track down people who are using VPNs? You know, it, it, it you know, it, again, this is a case where new technology is trumping the tactics of the old technology. I don't know that there's any way for the government to track people who are downloading VPNs, especially if they're, you know, once they've got the VPN, how are you going to find them? I guess maybe there's a way if they're tracking phones and they see that somebody is downloading something. I don't know if the Russian government, the technology of the Russian government is that granular that they're able to do that. The other side of the coin is that you've got, everybody's talking about being fearful of Russian cyber attacks. But right now, the only cyber attacks are going on by anonymous against the Russian government. One of the funnier things that I saw was that anonymous has been encouraging people, young people, I guess, in Russia to go to Google Maps and click on restaurants in St. Petersburg and Moscow and write a review that's actually news about what's going on in Ukraine. Again, how, if you've got a VPN, how is the Russian government going to, um, you know, combat that? This is all new technology that I think the Russian government is just incapable of getting under control. And as we all know, in almost all wars, especially the 20th century wars, the, the side that controls the information flow has an enormous advantage, regardless of whether or not they have the military power. Mm-hmm. John, yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, I it's it's odd because so when it was a while ago, but Putin was there. I I used a VPN in Moscow. I mean, that's what we did, right? We were there about computer security. What did we do? We used VPNs. I didn't know whether it was illegal or not. Um, so uh, who knows? Uh, not planning to go back anytime soon. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that you didn't end up in a gulag. Uh, yeah, so, um, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Everybody that I'm, I, I know uses them. Um, but VPN, remember, VPNs are not like a guarantee that what you're doing is not traceable. So, uh, you know, people should still be careful and if they want to know they're going to find out if you're a target they're going to they're going to be monitoring you but if you're an average citizen you can probably get away with it and use a vpn and check facebook and stuff without getting caught but uh um yeah yeah, it it, it, and remember so uh and there are you know all sorts of other ways missives to go back and forth from relatives the other thing that we didn't raise too is like the ukraine these are their brothers and sisters so it's not like 
oh, let's invade some foreign country where people look different from us yes. and we can have some racial yeah. things, you know, all these kind of other issues going on. This doesn't have those issues. And so uh, that's why you're seeing another problem that was underestimated. It was like people have relatives in Moscow. They have relatives in Kiev. It's just, right. you know, this is it, it's insanity, unfortunately. But um, yeah, the VPN th thing goes on. Like I said, I had no idea it was illegal. Now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it may not have been illegal when you were there. It probably wasn't. It probably wasn't because it didn't seem to be. Well, that was the same. I was there in 2012 and, you know, we used a VPN as well. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and the last couple of minutes we have here, and this has been a great discussion. And guys, thank you for uh, allowing me to dedicate the entire podcast to this. Is that, you know, social media, can it play a role? And it's kind of an abstract question. Can it play a role in providing an off-ramp for Putin to change course? And what I mean by that is that I look at this situation and I think about, well, you know, Putin has to realize, even if he, he's not, you know, watching coverage, if he's, if he's I, as isolated as he is, I have to believe he's getting some level of information from his trusted advisors. Yeah. At some point, he's got to say, you know what, what did I get myself into? This is not, I mean, this is going to be an occupation at best that unlike any other occupation um, will be worse than the Afghanistan experience because you have, um, you have a, a country of millions of people who are the vast majority of them. Yes, there'll be probably, you'll probably peel off a couple of hundred thousand um, Ukrainians that might be, um, they, they might be, you know, willing to partner with the Russians there to spy on the rest of everybody else, but it's not going to be a good, it's not going to be a good experience. And, you know, so, but I don't think he's the type of guy that want, is going to want to, he's going to say, even tomorrow if he said, hey, uh, just kidding, I'm going to back out and completely pull out. The, gov the, the world community has already weighed in. This guy's a pariah. We're on the road to destroying the Russian economy. I just don't see how he gets out of this unless there's a deal made, meaning that, okay, um, Vladimir, you know, you can keep 20% uh, of Ukraine, you know, the, the sections that are closest to Russia because there are, uh, there are Russian-speaking people there, but the other 80% is still going to be Ukraine. Now, I don't like that at all because it, it endorses what he did, but... I, unfortunately, I could see a deal like that being at least offered. Whether whether Zelensky would sign up to something like that, I don't know. But what I'm afraid of is that I don't see an off ramp here. You know, so what what's your thoughts, John, on the off ramp, and can social media play a role in, you know, convincing him that that off ramp might be acceptable? I don't. Yeah, I don't know that social media can be except. You know, you hear you you can sort of track trends and opinions across social media, which can be uh, interesting to see which way you feel things are going and opinions are going in, in, in certain places, but I'm not sure that they're gonna care very much about that. I mean, what's mm -hmm. interesting is the, as an off-ramp is that um, it looks like they're close to getting their land link, um, you know, across the Ukraine, uh, around the Black Sea. And that's really uh, one obviously critical point for them. Um, and once they really solidify that, will that be enough? I don't know. You know, that that does cut the Ukraine off from that venue and it gives Russia a direct land link all the way from Russia, all the way to that part of the Ukraine to, the, uh, to what they already invaded. I don't know what we're calling it now, but that, that, that part of the country they stole, whatever you want to say it is. <laughs> Um, so that, that's, maybe that's enough. I don't know, but, um, it doesn't look like it right now. It doesn't, there's not a no. lot of reason for optimism. 
Right. Stuart? Well, all technology, especially military technology, is always a double-edged sword. You know, and, it, and, it, and as I said at the beginning, it all depends upon who is more successful at deploying it uh, the way that either it was intended to deploy or the, uh, deployed in such a way that benefits only your side. You know, um, I think that what we've seen with social media up until now is both the good and the bad of social media. And there's also the unintended consequences. So, you know, the atomic bomb, you know, everybody said, oh, that ended the war. But look, at you know, it's it's an, it's kept the NATO or Western powers from doing anything in terms of air cover because they are just afraid, you know, Putin is going to set off, you know, tactical nu nuclear weapons and concerning the nuttiness that he's already exhibited, that's not necessarily, you know, uh, um, you know, not necessarily a bad thought, you know, or, you know, a poor judgment. So all technology, especially, is a dual-edged sword. And if the West and Ukrainians can figure out how to use social media even more than it was intended to do. So, for instance, turning it into everybody not having a, not only having a TV studio in their pocket, but having an Enigma machine in their right. pocket without Alan Turing on the Russian side to solve it. And that goes for citizens both in Ukraine and, and Russia for planning anything that they might do to, to battle in, uh, as an insurgency against the occupying force or in Russia against the Putin administration. So right. there are probably ways that people will be able to use this technology that we haven't thought of yet, again, because that always happens in wartime, that will both be a boon and a bane, depending upon who uses it and how. Right. Well, just to wrap a bow on this, you know, I, I do hope that... Um, you know, I really do hope that there is some type of off-ramp that occurs over the next uh, four or five days. I, I don't think there's an obvious one. Um, I think, again, back to the comments I was making before that, you know, Putin is not a social media fanatic. I don't, when, you, when you're in that kind of frame of mind, you could, you could care less about what the world right. is saying about you. I mean, right. in, fact, in fact, he probably would, if he knew what was being said about him right now, I mean, what would be the motivation for him to stop? You know, I mean, and I think it's analogous to the situation where Hitler was when he was in the bunker for those last, you know, couple of months where, you know, he certainly wasn't being, wasn't privy to what was going on um, in the rest of the world. He had a staff that was very much protecting him. And just can you imagine had Hitler had, and I think, Stuart, you and I have talked about this before, had Hitler had access to nuclear weapons at the end, even one or two bombs, do you really think he would have hesitated in using them? And that we'll find, we'll find out very shortly whether Putin, as he's being backed into a corner here in a situation that I just, I don't see a scenario that is going to end well for him, you know, because he, he'll, he, even at this point, again, if everything went back to normal tomorrow, he completely pulled out, he can never leave Russia again, okay? And I really do think that all he's done is he's emboldened NATO. They're united in a way they haven't been united since the Cuban since the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I think that if there's any part of Ukraine that remains free after this is all over, guess what? It may be coming it may on the on the fast track to becoming a NATO country really fast, despite the despite all the um, the uh, the skepticism that they were encountering, you know, uh, over the last several years. And so I think the world is going to be a different place. Um, and I don't know. It, it, it's but it's it, it could be a good thing. I hope something good comes out of this, and I hope what comes out of this, frankly, is the uh, 
the overthrow of um, Putin. But uh, any closing comments, Stuart, before we sign off? Well, this is going to take a long time. And I think the more military success he has, the worse it's actually going to get for him. Um, because it's simply going to bring the parties who have been hesitant, like China and India, a little closer to the West than he would have wanted. So again, in the battle of unintended consequences, the the more military success that he has, the worse it's going to get for him. Because And again, since we're speaking from a technology point of view, the technology advantage that the Ukrainians and the West have are going to come to the fore. This whole idea of controlling information, which Putin not only doesn't have, he never had it, and I don't think he understands it. And the fact that he does not understand that this is going to turn into an information war, I think is completely lost on him and will be ultimately his his undoing. Undoing, I agree. John? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it, this is going to end anytime soon, unfortunately, and I don't think they'll be able to occupy the country, so that's going to be a, a very difficult time, you know, mm-hmm. for a long time. Um and think, and I think of all the Ukrainians that I know. It's it's uh, a horrific situation, and even Russian and people I know here in New York, they think it's a horrific situation, and they oh, yeah. looked at this as is just a horrible thing. So uh, a very sad moment in time, you know. And uh, I just hope that as many Ukrainians can stay safe during this as possible. Well, well, one other quick point, one other technology that we haven't really talked about is the global monetary system. And that's really what's enabled a lot of these sanctions. Yeah. And one aspect of this that has been nagging me for the last couple of days with the ruble falling the way it is because technology has allowed the West to cut off all of those funds. How is he going to continue to pay his soldiers? No, that's exactly right. Well, and again, to your point, imagine going to the ATM in Moscow and checking your checking account or your balance, whatever the hell they have over there, and you have zero balance or 5% of what you had before, you know? So I, they are setting the stage for an uprising. I really believe, I really believe that you've already got oligarchs who would never have crossed um, uh, Putin, who are now kind of whispering, and not even whispering, they're saying very publicly, you know, this is probably not the right thing to happen. And when the oligarchs speak, and it's all technology that's enabling us to do yes. the West to do that. That's, right. that's exactly right. Well, guys, listen, thank you for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, please um, thank you for making the Smart Tech Check podcast part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vienna Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great weekend. And thanks, guys, for uh, participating. Thank you.